We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the unbelievable truth, the panel show about incredible truths and barely credible lies. I'm David Mitchell. This week's panel is 100% guaranteed to make you laugh, consisting as it does of four comedians who are 25% guaranteed to make you laugh. Please welcome David O'Doherty, Ellis James, Maeve Higgins and Reginald D. Hunter. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five hidden truths which their opponents should try to identify. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth, or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. First up is Ellis James. Ellis, your subject is the 1970s, a decade in the 20th century which saw great social and cultural change, spawning many iconic games, films, TV shows and songs. Off you go, Ellis. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. The 1970s were bleak years. I mean, they definitely were. (laughs) (laughs) Too early? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That's not one of the truths that Ellis was given, uh, but, I mean, it's certainly arguable. I mean, define a bleak year. Uh, When I can't walk, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Zero walking would be a main thing. I'm not sure I can accept the definition of a bleak year entirely in terms of what you were experiencing. Well, you know Bleak House, the Dickens book that no one's read? Well, in that, uh, no one can walk. So, <laughs> and it's set in the 70s. <laughs> A lot of people who can't walk wearing flares. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to give you a bonus point. It was quite a bleak decade. I've got a vague montage of footage of Ted Heath looking yeah. worried. and Lots and of bin bags piled up. Bin bags, Ted Heath. And it's always, uh, on every documentary, it's always that uh, Margaret Thatcher speech, where there is discord, may we bring harmony, cuts to footage of the miners' strike. That's like a yeah. documentary sort of rule. Yes. Although that is the 80s. Yes. <laughs> just, yeah. just, just trying to play with your mind and maybe yeah. sort of... <laughs> anyway, the 1970s were bleak years. Britain still had rationing, and it was the decade music died. All that was available to the hardcore music lover was third-wave prog rock bands such as Pink CC, Sauron's Grief Silo or ABBA. (laughs) ABBA, of course, were briefly called engaged couples. Other names they rejected include the Melody Men in their Captive Songbirds and the Pop Gnomes from Stockholm. But not all bands were as gratingly discordant as ABBA. Melodious punk bands swept the nation and groups such as Fallopian Tube Train and Kevin Retch and the Plastercast Flem incident were having top ten hits. (laughs) Possibly influenced by the nihilistic pose of artists like Russ Abbott and Petula Clark, Rick Jones, or Yoffe, destroyed the mouse puppet after filming the last episode of Finger Bobs while the cameras were still rolling. Artists such as Abbott and Finger Bobs are style icons to this day. David. I think the Fallopian Tubes might have been a punk band. I mean, it's taken a while for me to mould it over. <laughs> Maybe I'm seeing the album artwork could be like the tube yeah. map. Yeah, and I imagine if you're listening to them in stereo, you don't know if the sound is going to come from, like, the left or the right. Exactly, yeah. A joke for all my menstruating girls out there. <laughs> oh, I, was t- I thought it was strong about the tube. No, so, like, come. which one the egg is going to come down? So it's, it's, it's sort of like the northern line. LAUGHTER <laughs> 
Unfortunately, Fallopian Tube Train is not a real punk band. Oh. Um, in 1976, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II sent her first email, which is why she's lucky enough to have the email address liz1 at btinternet.co.uk. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't until 1983 that the VHS video recorder made watching pornography in a caravan possible for the first time in history. And if you were unable to afford a caravan to watch pornography in, you could give the Rubik's Cube a go. Rubik's Cubers can suffer from Cubist's tick, which is when the empty hands twitch uncontrollably as if still trying to solve the cube. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I believe it. I believe that that's a fact, mm. what he just said. Cubists tick. Yep. The, when their hand's twitching uncontrollably as if still trying to... <laughs> yeah, go ahead um, and give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and give it to me, Dave. Go ahead. Go ahead. Unfortunately, it's not a thing. Cubists tick. Okay, give, give it to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> The 1979 film Monty Python's Life of Brian was banned for blasphemy by the local council of Runnymede until it was pointed out that Runnymede doesn't have any cinemas. Feelings ran so high in the council that it was suggested they build a cinema in the district just so they could ban it. <laughs> Maeve. I think that is probably true that it was banned. I think it was banned in some places. It was banned in Ireland. Yeah, but he's, you said, where did you say? Runnymede. 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 Runny oh, that's Mead not a real place. It's a local, no, it is a real place. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I know it sounds like it's from the Lord of the Rings or something, but yeah. no, Runnymede was where King John and the Baron signed the Magna Carta. <gasps> you know, that's... Yeah. You seem shocked. It's breaking news. <laughs> Evil king and barons reach agreement. It's just that I don't have a VHS recorder, so I miss everything. <laughs> uh, yes, so, so, so is it is a real true? place, and it tried to ban the life of Brian despite having no cinemas from which to ban it. Well done. You get a Thank point. Thank you. <laughs> What's the film called with the cowboys who fall in love and make love in a tent? Brokeback Mountain. My friend was on an internal flight in India a few years ago, and he watched... They had cut it back to 45 minutes and <laughs> removed uh, the entire homosexual plot from it. So it was just a really tense film about farming. <laughs> so did the 1970s produce any notable innovations? Well, not only was gravity nationalised under Edward Heath, making it free for all at the point of use, but curry was invented in 1978 and was initially marketed as a flu remedy called chicken in crazy gravy. <laughs> Modern car design was influenced by the Austin Allegro, which, although being more aerodynamic when travelling backwards than when it was being driven forwards, was the first car to have more ashtrays than seats. Dave. <laughs> more aerodynamic going backwards than going forwards. You're right. The Austin Allegro was more aerodynamic when travelling backwards than when being driven forwards. How did that get signed off? <laughs> I mean, I think British Leyland went through a pretty bad yeah. patch. Um, For parking, it would be efficient when you're packing into this space. Mm -hmm. You're doing a lot of parking. Yeah. You would, you'd get the fuel efficiency gain. <laughs> <laughs> In short, if you've ever worn a tank top to a job interview or paid for something by drilling for North Sea oil, you have the 1970s to thank. Thank you, Ellis. <laughs> and uh, at the end of that round, Ellis, you've managed to smuggle three truths oh. past the rest of the panel, which are that ABBA were briefly called engaged couples. <laughs> um, the quartet made their first appearance in 1969 as the cabaret act Fest Folk, 
1970s slang term in Swedish meaning engaged couples. Um, wow. The second truth is that uh, Rick Jones, or Yoffy, destroyed the mouse puppet after filming the last episode of Finger Bobs while the camera was still rolling. <laughs> Presenter Rick Jones was apparently so sick of making the show, even though it only ran for 13 episodes, <laughs> that he couldn't wait for the camera to stop yeah. rolling before destroying the finger puppets. <laughs> the third truth that Ellis managed to smuggle is that Queen Elizabeth II sent her first email in 1976. Oh, wow. What? She okay. sent it during a visit to an army base at a time when the technology was in its infancy. Her first email was probably, my cousin, the Crown Prince of Burundi, needs 20,000. <laughs> <laughs> immediately to unlock a huge sum of money. And that means, Ellis, that you've scored three points. OK, we turn now to Maeve Higgins. She's an Irish writer who has recently moved to New York. She got the idea from every Irish writer ever. <laughs> Maeve, your subject is The Moon. Planet Earth's natural satellite, usually visible at night by reflected light from the sun. Off you go, Maeve. In the 19th century, when the English had run out of countries to colonise, why didn't they point their empire-building finger at the moon? In fact, they didn't dare to point at the moon because it was disrespectful. No buzzes? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the North American grey wolf howls at the moon, a habit it picked up from the southern grasshopper mouse, the only carnivorous mouse in North America, which howls on moonlit nights as it feasts on its prey. It sounds quite like this. Reg. I, I, I do believe that the North American grey wolf does howl at the moon. You're American, right? So maybe we should take his word. For... Have you heard that? I'm not going to take his word for it. That's not, <laughs> that's not how this works. And I can tell you, no, it does not howl at the moon. It howls, mm -hmm. and it howls at night. Mm -hmm. But it's not howling at the moon. It's just how do you a, know? It's a, I mean, I, I, I'm basing it on what's written on this piece of paper oh. that I was handed over today. I hate today. to be pedantic yeah. here, and I can't believe I've just said that to you of all people, but <laughs> if it howls at night, sometimes it howls at the moon. Are you saying that if it howls when the moon's there, that means it's howling at the moon? <laughs> In fact, I'm glad he said that. Does that piece of paper say the North American grey wolf howls at night? but it never, ever howls at the moon. Does it say that? Yeah, that's what it says is... That, but what it says is that the North American grey wolf, they howl at each other, and they're nocturnal creatures. Mm -hmm. So often they are howling at the same time as the moon is visible. So you're saying a nocturnal creature just decide, I ain't gonna mess with the moon, though. Well, no, what, no, what I'm saying is that if, if you're a non-nocturnal creature, like, say, a dog, and mm -hmm. you're barking, people don't assume, oh, look at that dog barking at the sun. It's just because well, it's, it's at night time, you're assuming, oh, it must be to do with the moon. It's not. It's just getting on with its business. They're not howling at the sky. There's just, in order to howl, it's a sort of upward movement of the chin, isn't yeah. it? It's just... Really? Really? So you're saying that you've got to be holding your head upwards in order to howl. You can't hold your head down and howl. Well, I'm going to try. <laughs> Oh No, you can't. He's got it. He's got it. He's got to get that. Oh he's Well, you know to... what? I'm he's glad got... you did that little demonstration. Now I believe you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Mate. Astronauts are good at one thing and one thing only, and that is going into space. If you think differently, <laughs> it's just because you saw the movie Gravity and you got all mixed up. Red. <laughs> 
what wolves do howl at the moon? <laughs> I mean, if the North American gray wolf don't do it, surely there are wolves that do howl at the moon. It might be helpful for you to understand that they're like communicating with each other because like, how else are they going to communicate with each other? Do they have phones, iPods, nothing? When they're yelling, they're yelling at each other. It's nothing to do with what's in the sky. You know what, Maeve, as I think about what you said, I, I don't find that very helpful at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I sure appreciate that, though. I sure appreciate that. No, I, I don't know as much about wolves as I wish I oh, did. Oh, you seemed like now. an expert two minutes ago. <laughs> all I'm telling you is that the North American grey wolf does not howl at the moon. I can tell by your tone you feel quite done with this subject. No, <laughs> I'm just trying to say they're highly evolved carnivores. They're not going to waste time howling at the moon. Okay. They don't howl at the stars, do they? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, God, I've opened a real can of worms now. Uh, actually, worms don't come in cans. <laughs> <laughs> In reality, poor old Neil Armstrong worked as a janitor in a high school through his later years, and his co-pilot, Buzz Aldrin, failed to sell a single car in the six months he worked as a car salesman on his return from space. I'll go, I'll, David. I'll jump in there. I'll have Buzz working in a... You know, because people wouldn't have... Oh, buzz, did you just hear the word Buzz and you buzzed? Buzz, buzz. <laughs> Are you talking about Aldrin? <laughs> I... Because I imagine people, if I heard Buzz Aldrin was working in a car dealership, I'd be like, oh, well, I'll go and talk to him and pretend I want to buy a car. Yeah. And then I'd ask him what the moon was like. But you're right, though. Yes. He did. He, he worked at a car dealership. <laughs> yes, he, he, Aldrin had a bit of a rough patch after returning to Earth. After a failed stint in the US Air Force, he started drinking, had an affair, suffered depression and a marriage breakup before taking a job at a Cadillac dealership in Beverly Hills, where he failed to sell a single car in his six months in the job. I'm not surprised. Those are such different skill sets. Like, mm. I know, yeah. but you, you very ever, different skills. Maeve, basically. did you ever see the footage of when the Apollo uh, landing craft hits the moon? He walks around and he's kicking the tires, and he's like, <laughs> "She's abused." <laughs> Just an old lady. I mean, she used it to go shopping a couple of times a week, but that was it, really. I mean, I'm not quite sure how Buzz Aldrin actually sounds, but I've really committed myself to this voice. I would be quite surprised if he sounded like that. But if he did, it would explain why he did not sell a single yeah. car. <laughs> I got an Aston Allegra here. She goes backwards like a rocket. <laughs> I should know! <laughs> it is said, rather poetically, that the moon is always falling. And in case you're wondering, yes, that is why I'm wearing this bicycle helmet in the studio. David. The moon is indeed always falling. And at some point in the future, it will rejoin the Earth. Creating a sort of uh, like a snowman, a Venn diagram, like like, <laughs> like a Venn diagram where the intersection is dead people. <laughs> <laughs> it it is true that the moon is always falling. Yes. Um, The moon is perpetually falling towards the Earth. However, it has a sideways motion of its own that balances this falling motion. It therefore stays in a closed orbit about the Earth. 
never falling altogether and never escaping altogether. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the moon. But for a satellite, don't you think it's kind of embarrassing that you can't even get the basic TV stations up there? If you're desperate, you can pick up FM radio stations on the moon. Actually, that's the only place they've been available since 1994. Boom. Reg. I do believe you can pick up FM radio stations on the moon. I do believe that. You're right to believe that. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> I'm on to you, Maeve. It took me a few paragraphs <laughs> to center in on what your truth is, but I got you now. That was the last line. Thank you, Maeve. <laughs> and at the end of that round, Maeve, you managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, which are that pointing at the moon was considered disrespectful. It was a popular belief that pointing at the moon and indeed counting the stars brought bad luck and according to one British superstition, anyone who pointed at it nine times could not enter heaven. Uh, and the second truth is that the southern grasshopper mouse, the only carnivorous mouse in North America, howls on moonlit nights as it feasts on its prey. And that means, Maeve, you've scored two points. There's a crater on the moon called Birmingham. And indeed, one in the Midlands. Moon was the maiden name of Buzz Aldrin's mother. So Buzz was simply following in his father's footsteps when he landed on an untouched moon and started exploring. <laughs> Next up is Reginald D. Hunter. Reginald, your subject is toys. Objects, typically model or miniature replicas of something, which are given to children to play with. Off you go, Reginald. Toys. An essay by Reginald D. Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> The earliest discovered toy is a bronze slinky from the Bronze Age, about 5,000 B.C. The reason slinkies weren't made before that date was because in the Stone Age, there were no staircases. <laughs> Mattel produced the defecation toy known as Barbie and her dog Tanner. The child feeds brown magnetic log-shaped food into Tanner's mouth, lifts up the dog's tail, and then watches the food slide out of Tanner's backside. David. I think kids really like cleaning up after fake dogs. So I'm going to jump straight in there and say that is 100% definitely true. So let's not even have a discussion. Just carry on. Give me the point. <laughs> well, it is true, so you get the point. Oh, yeah. Another little known fact, the original toy was to have Barbie do the pooping. <laughs> but they focus grouped it, and the only group that liked it were middle-aged, rich Japanese bitches. <laughs> 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 the hula hoop was banned in Albania, Egypt, and Indonesia. The Albanians and the Egyptians believed the lascivious pelvic gyrations would encourage immorality, and in Indonesian, the word hula hoop means testicle. Maeve. I feel like maybe that could be true. Like, it's ludicrous, but I think it was banned in the countries for being too sexy. And it's, it's also horribly revealing when, like, you try and do the hula hoop and you can't really do it, and then, like, everyone knows you're bad at sex. <laughs> the hula hoop was an invention to try and figure out which girls you'd have to do all the work with. Yes. <laughs> That's why it should be banned. I don't know whether to... I think... Mm. Give me... It's fine. You should no. have a pity point at least. Well, I think I have to give you a point it. and take a point away, because it was not banned oh. in Albania or Egypt, but it was banned in Indonesia. It was also banned, by the way, in the Soviet Union and Japan. 
Japan and Indonesia believed it was indecent to shake one's hips in public, whilst the Soviet Union denounced the hoop as an example of, quote, the emptiness of American culture. (laughs) I don't think I look particularly erotic when I'm eating hula hoops. (laughs) (laughs) For Valentine's Day 2005... The Vermont Teddy Bear Company brought out a Crazy For You bear tightly bound in a white straitjacket that came with its own commitment papers. <laughs> Kaba Kick is a Japanese-Russian roulette game for kids. The child points the gun at his or her own head and pulls the trigger. If the gun doesn't fire, the child earns points. Maeve. I think that might be true. The that, Japanese gun? That is true. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. Kaba means hippo in Japanese, mm-hmm. and when the gun shoots, a pair okay. of hippo's legs come out from the barrel and kick the child in the head. <laughs> so, yes, that was like a great toy. Play-Doh was originally sold as a wallpaper cleaner, and Crazy Putty started life as Sensible Putty. <laughs> um, David. David had already says with full confidence that Play-Doh was a wallpaper cleaner. And you are right to do so. Oh, Yes. It was created in 1933 as a wallpaper cleaner by Qtol Products, a family-owned Cincinnati soap company. When vinyl wallpaper was introduced after the war, which is easier to clean, sales of the product fell until a relative of the owners discovered that the product could be used as a modelling clay for kids. Uh, And that's the end of Reginald's lecture. And at the end of that round, Reg, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that for Valentine's Day 2005, the Vermont Teddy Bear Company brought out a crazy-for-you bear tightly bound in a white straitjacket that came with its own commitment papers. (laughs) Despite what the company described as unusually good sales, they discontinued the bear after mounting criticism from mental health campaigners who branded the bear insensitive. And that means you've scored one point. <laughs> Next up is David O'Doherty. Your subject, David, is electricity, a type of energy fueled by the transfer of electrons from positive and negative points within a conductor. Off you go, David. Legendary bluesman Lightning Hopkins could only write songs after he'd been struck by lightning. So he'd spend entire days standing on the roof of his local Tesco wearing a suit of armour with a car aerial or just talking on the telephone, the leading cause of lightning injuries inside the home. (gasps) The poet Shelley once tied a kite to a cat's tail during a thunderstorm in the hope that it would be electrocuted. Maeve. I think that is a true thing, that Shelley would tie a kite to a cat's tail, because he was always up to mischief. (laughs) Tell us about your top five, Shelley, mischievous things. What? He would always knock on hotel doors and run away. Oh my goodness. You'd be like, where's Tesco? He'd be like, over there, but it would be the other way. Well, you're absolutely right. That is a classic Shelley antic. Isn't it? Uh, Yes, he sent up a local tomcat on a kite to see what lightning would do to a living body. Uh, The plan backfired for Shelley, literally, when the cat absorbed the voltage of the lightning bolt and later, while carrying out a revenge pee, tasered Shelley. They will do this. A double bolt of lightning is known as a Jedward, after meteorologist <laughs> Sir Basil Jedward, regarded as the most annoying scientist of the Victorian age. 
<laughs> so annoying that his contemporaries encouraged him to go outside during violent thunderstorms dressed entirely in tinfoil to practice his golf. <laughs> the sport during which 12% of lightning fatalities take place. Maeve. I think that's true about 12% of sports fatalities during lightning. 12% of all fatalities. All fatalities. Yeah. Because well, you should go into water when there's lightning. No, and I think famously, you, you don't. I think don't. No. No, I think that's the. Well, you don't. Don't. Don't do that unless you go under go the under water. Go under a tree. Don't. No. Don't no, do that. I think you, you're supposed to just put up. <laughs> put up a metal washing line or something. <laughs> that's, that's what they say. But you're right about the twelve percent thing. That um, <laughs> golf is the sport during which twelve percent of lightning fatalities take place. As well as being painful, lightning is notoriously sexist. <laughs> Although 82% of people killed by lightning are men, strikes on women tend to be accompanied by a sleazy wolf whistle and whoa <laughs> sound. I'm sorry, right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Florida, but I do believe that more men get struck by lightning than women. You are right. 82% of people killed by lightning are men. All survivors of lightning strikes invariably experience bizarre and unexpected after-effects. A postman who was struck in Belgium in the 1960s became magnetic and couldn't dismount his bicycle for six months. <laughs> a truck driver who'd been blinded in an accident had his sight restored nine years later when he was struck by lightning. Reg. Yeah, I believe that. I believe the truck driver had his sight restored. I you think. believe there was a blind truck driver? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a period when he was driving this route where he was not blind. That's absolutely true. The uh, truck driver who was blinded in an accident had his sight restored nine years later by being struck by lightning. The truck driver was Edwin E. Robinson from New England, and the lightning struck his hearing aids as he was searching for his pet chicken in a storm. <laughs> as, as well as restoring... As well as restoring his 2020 vision, the lightning strike also restored his hearing and caused him to start growing hair on his head again. Among animals, after effects can be even stranger. A cow that is struck by lightning during summer will deliver a pail full of totally tropical soft drink lilt. <laughs> <laughs> but if the strike takes place in winter, she will lactate ten feet of Christmas tree tinsel. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. And... At the end of that round, David, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that talking on the telephone is the leading cause of lightning injuries inside the home. During a lightning storm, it's advisable to avoid contact with anything that conducts electricity, including landline telephones. Uh, and that means, David, you've scored one point. It's said that if you stroke a cat 70 million times, you'll develop enough static electricity to keep a light bulb glowing for one minute. That's according to George Osborne's latest austerity leaflet for pensioners. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to the final scores. In joint third place, with no points each, we have Ellis James and Reginald D. Hunter. <laughs> In second place, with two points... It's David O'Doherty. Uh, my high-risk strategy. And in first place with an unassailable three points, it's this week's winner, Maeve Higgins. Thank you. That's about it for this week. Goodbye.
The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists Mae Higgins, Ellis James, David O'Doherty and Reginald D. Hunter. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash and the producer was John Naismith. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.